I'd like tonight uh, to go back, bearing in mind these readings that we've taken earlier on, uh, which are significant always when we're looking at the commandments of God, to go back to Exodus chapter 20 and to verse 14. The seventh commandment, going through the commandments uh, in our evening worship and then uh, the young people are looking at them uh, again in identity up at the house. Uh, One or two more practical outworking and and, uh, working through some of the issues, but it's a short commandment as well. You shall not commit adultery. Self-explanatory. I could say amen. We could all go home. Maybe. There's actually so much in this whole area um, that uh, we can only really just uh, skim the surface in many ways. But what I want to do tonight is uh, remind ourselves that this is a key, absolutely key commandment. Uh, Remember, it's in the second table of the law, which is looking at our relationships with one another. And uh, it very much gets to the heart of what we are as people. I think in many different ways, and what we are as society. And I hope that at least what we'll be able to do is to trigger some thoughts and to trigger uh, some further study in this area for ourselves uh, in our lives. But what I want to do by way of introduction is to remind you of what Jesus says in uh, Matthew chapter 22 and at verse uh, 37. Um, The Pharisees asked Jesus about the commandments. Uh, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like this, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, he's saying that the, the ten commandments that we have are really summarized in these two commandments. The first four commands uh, of the Ten Commandments really are speaking about how we are to relate to God. And the second table of the law, as it's called, the next law, uh, remind us how we are to act with one another. And so it's about loving God and it's about loving one another. And really what the laws do is they show us that we can't do it. It's impossible for us to be perfectly fulfilling or obeying God's law. So uh, it, it exposes our guilt exposes our need and drives us to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who fulfilled the whole law of God and then was crucified on the cross as a sinner because he was dying in our place out of love and out of grace. So we recognize that uh, even this law is part of the second summary that Jesus gives about loving your neighbor as yourself. Now loving your neighbor as yourself doesn't mean you can have sex with everyone you want. That's completely not what it means about loving your neighbor as yourself. What is spoken of here is a reminder for us to protect, primarily to protect the family unit. The protection of marriage and the family unit. From the very beginning, uh, love and the expression of love, uh, the sexual expression of love has been uh, to be contained within the parameters that God has given of marriage. That relationship uh, of equality, a diversity in equality, a relationship of faithfulness, of joy, of erotic adventure, of intimacy, of sacrifice, of security, a covenantal relationship, 
where the two become one flesh, and that is not merely a physical union, but it is a much deeper union that's expressed within that, and for the procreation of family and children and the next generations uh, that come from that. And so there's this real positive core. In fact, all the commandments, although many of them are stated negatively, do not, do not, do not, they have the corollary, the opposite, which we'll look at as well, the positive side that they're protecting and that they're speaking about. Here, there's the positive reality of uh, family love and uh, marriage within that. And we know that that's an absolutely fundamental core uh, building block uh, relationship of society for, uh, for all time. And it's so important that in many ways, it's reflective of the Trinity. Uh, and, you know, in the image of God, God created them, male and female. He made them in God's image. So there's this reflect in society and community and men and women together, we have the image of God reflected. And even more so, that precious relationship is reflected in redemption in the story of, of grace, where God reveals the image of his church as his bride the bride of Christ. And there's this relational aspect to, to marriage that reflects a spiritual relationship between God and his people. So it's a fundamental and basic and important relationship, this relationship of marriage that is spoken of and is being protected uh, in the negative tones of this particular command. So there's that positive element. But negatively... Uh, we are faced in the society in which we live and, and throughout history uh, of a different and a more brutal reality. And we recognize uh, the abuses uh, of sex which has uh, damaged love and dignity and has uh, loosened the strength of the family unit and the family bond. When sin came into the world, in other words, uh, God was rejected and God's ways were rejected and uh, God's judgment fell upon the whole of, of society and the world so that everything in many ways is out of sync and upside down and not right. And the joy of sex became uncoupled from marriage in the majority of circumstances. And instead of being something uh, which was for serving and forgiving and for an expression of love, it became something for self-gratification and instead of being relational, it became objectified so that it was just about uh, seeing people as objects to uh, be enjoyed and participated in rather than in relational talent. It became ungovernable. And people, instead of uh, uh, looking for love, uh, satisfied themselves and settled for sex. Out with of that uh, parameter and with that protection and with that love and with that... Uh, surrounding that God had given it. There's a great quote from a book called The Mystery of Marriage by Mike Mason, which is in the little uh, book that I go through with people getting married. It's, it's, I think, a very helpful quote. It says, To be naked with another person is a sort of picture or symbolic demonstration of perfect honesty, perfect trust, perfect giving and commitment. And if the heart is not naked along with the body, then the whole action becomes a lie and a mockery. It becomes a, an involvement and an absurd and tragic contradiction, the giving of the body, but the withholding of the self. It is, in effect, the very last step in human relations, and therefore not one to be taken lightly. It is not a step which establishes deep intimacy, but one which presupposes it. 
So can you see the great difference there uh, in God's pattern and with what often uh, uh, happens and uh, uh, is experienced in the society in which we live? And obviously the world uh, in which we live broken by sin, then all of the commands uh, are affected negatively by that. And it happens in so many different ways. Uh, Some people uh, battle uh, with same-sex attraction. Some people embrace that. Uh, People are faced with division caused by um, uh, sexual behavior. Others are abused by it. It's uh, commercialized to a huge degree in the the society, Western particularly society in which we live. And uh, the slavery that I prayed about earlier uh, in our sophisticated and uh, beautiful world is probably greater now than it ever was in the centuries past. It's the cause of much manipulation uh, of commerce, of sales. And that is just on the outside. In our own lives and in our own hearts, there's all kinds of lusts and confusion and slavery to uh, sexual desires and damage. And I just want to uh, take a tangent here for a moment uh, because there's been a great deal of spoken in the last number of years, particularly about the church and the attitude of the church to homosexuality. And for the most part, for me, certainly, that has been a very unwelcome focus. It seems that today, more than ever, particularly in Scotland with uh, uh, same-sex marriage uh, being on the agenda and the church uh, having to deal with that, the way the the national church and and all that goes with it, that uh, for many people it's become now the definition of orthodoxy is our understanding of uh, uh, these matters and, and what our position is with regard to homosexuality. It's the first question many people will ask. Uh, when uh, they find out you're a Christian, oh well, that means you'll be uh, against homosexuals, you'll be anti-gay, you'll be homophobic. And that will often be the question that's asked. And I think the debate in our society, and I don't know if it's right to call it a debate, uh, but has become very polarized. There are many on, on one extreme who are vociferous in pushing the gay agenda, maybe in political terms more so, and uh, has seen this opportunity to smash the church Uh, because of their views. And then on the other extreme, there's uh, the implicit homophobic behavior that some in the church display and uh, the insensitivity that many in the church have displayed with respect to uh, homosexuality. So I just wanted to say a couple of things about why in this pulpit over the last two or three years, uh, I have not majored on and focused on and always talked about the homosexual issue uh, where it seemed to be such a major issue in our society and uh, in many of our Christian magazines and such like. And the first thing is because it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. The gospel is not our view, our sexuality or our view of sex. The gospel is that we all need grace. The gospel, as I understand it, is that we are all sexual sinners. Just as we break every one of God's laws, I hope we'll go on to recognize and know and see. 
and that so often it becomes easy judgmentalism to expose uh, whatever uh, sexual sin it might be that we see in our society. It's not the gospel. The gospel is that we all need Jesus Christ. And because I know that in every congregation there are believers who struggle with same-sex attraction and who may be afraid uh, of that temptation, who may be confused, who may feel isolated, who have questions and anger sometimes against God or certainly sometimes his people and uh, are hurt by the throwaway comments that they hear in the church regarding uh, these issues and about uh, uh, being straight or being gay. Many who are looking for intimacy but unable to express or find that, recognizing uh, the celibacy that they seek to follow as believers. The last thing they need is formulaic or cheaply forged or often trite comments from the pulpit that don't acknowledge the battle and the struggle that people are facing. And tonight what I want to remind ourselves of is that we all need to find our identity in Jesus Christ, in the gospel. Not in our marriage partners, not in our sexuality, not in our career, not in our qualifications, not in our achievements, not in our success, not in our gifts. But we find our identity in Jesus, Jesus Christ. That's what balance, that's what equals us together uh, before God this evening. So, I want you just for a moment, for a moment for us to think about this law that we have here. God's law, God's pattern for living. And we need to remind ourselves that uh, within, although it's negatively constructed, uh, we need to remember that God's law also is giving us uh, the polar opposite, which is the goodness of what he has given, and that sex is good. Within its biblical parameters, within the pattern that God intended for us, it's a great thing. The expression of love, of sharing, of being one, of being honest with one another. Uh, It's pleasurable uh, within the marriage context and it's for making babies. In the lifelong committed relationship of marriage. And we know within that, or out with of that, should I say, The abuse of that model and that pattern may indeed well be sweet in the mouth. Otherwise, it wouldn't be temptation, would it? It wouldn't be attractive. But as God reminds us, to reject his way and to reject his pattern will end up as it being gravel in the stomach. Sweet in the mouth, but ultimately damaging and dangerous when we go against him and abuse people and abuse ourselves by ignoring the parameters that he gives us. So sex, within its biblical context, great. But also we need to understand the wider biblical context that the commands are always written in. Because the commands are summaries, aren't they? We've seen that before. 
and that we, we need to take in all of the Bible's teaching in this area. And we recognize that. Uh, the Bible, uh, in many of the commands, are categories of truth. And uh, Jesus expresses, and the New Testament expresses, and other parts of the Bible express uh, the outworking sometimes of these commands and, and uh, categorize them more. Uh, so we recognize it's not just narrowly the committing uh, of adultery, uh, the breaking of the marriage bond uh, by giving yourself physically to someone who is not your wife or your husband. Although that is spoken of here, and we're reminded of the pain and the betrayal and the unfaithfulness and the separation and the damage it often causes not only to the individuals involved, but also to the children if there are children involved in that. Uh, someone sent me an interesting article this week written, uh, I think it was in the New York Times, by someone who wasn't a Christian, but who was spoken about the pain of adultery. And she was speaking as one who had committed adultery and who had been this, the also had been uh, had com- adultery committed against her and t- her husband, uh, breaking the marriage bond. Both, she said, were hugely painful and damaging in the long term. Uh, the reality of these broken vows and broken love and broken relationship. But within that uh, category of Scripture, we see it's broadened, isn't it? Because we see that. We see that the outworking of this command must be broader than the mere committing of adultery. Uh, the Bible speaks of uh, premarital sex and of incest and of homosexual sex and of casual sex and abuse and slavery and violence and pornography. A huge, a huge issue today. A huge problem on the internet today. A huge issue for our young people, and our not-so-young people, I'm sure, uh, where there is such uh, free and easy access to pornography, uh, which we simply don't have time to uh, further deal with and and look into today. But these issues, and rape, and all the different sexual uh, abuses that happen in the society in which we live all uh, uh, desensitize uh, all about self gratification, all out with the parameters of relationship, and all revealing a slavery to our appetites that we mentioned this morning in the passage in Hebrews. So that the Bible gives us a broader. Uh, uh, broader areas that, are def- that further define this commandment uh, that are we- we're to recognize uh, as being unhelpful, unhealthy, uh, disobedient, and, and moving out of what God has intended for us. So with all the commands, we see there's a positive side. With all the commands, we see that there's a wider biblical teaching that broadens them but also we recognize with all the commands that they are turned inside out that Jesus takes them and he turns them inside out and we saw that in the passage in Matthew Matthew chapter 5 if we just look at that again that's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he does a lot of this turning inside out of uh, the commands and uh, moving them just to outward behavior into the inside intentions of our heart You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. And he further, he doesn't, 
he doesn't rubbish that. He says, yeah, that's absolutely right. But I'm telling you, he says, anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery within his heart. So he's, he's, he's turning the commands, just like murder, we looked at that, and, and how hatred is, is the internal motive that leads to, to murder. So lust is the internal motive that leads to uh, wrong attitudes and wrong thinking. It always starts, in other words, in our hearts. So it moves it just from what everyone else is doing outside and what, what other attractions there might be outside to what we are thinking and what we are like inside ourselves. It's a great reality of grace, isn't it? Grace always turns the tension and the light on ourselves. It stops wagging the finger at everybody else and it finds that there's great need to uh, be have this knotted and twisted and broken heart untangled and purified and cleaned by God himself. And it always starts uh, in our heart. And so we have to be challenged by our own attitudes to the opposite sex. Uh, We have to be uh, challenged by uh, our attitude to those who we love. We have to think about what we fantasize about and what is in our imagination and uh, what causes us satisfaction and dissatisfaction. We need to think about coveting what is not ours and lust, uh, which uh, we are asked to deal with and control and uh, uh, purify and seek forgiveness for. So that there's this great secret, invisible, internal reality which we're asked to deal with uh, and to move from in our Christian lives and uh, Paul and, and Corinthians, the other passage, talk about fleeing sexual immorality. Get, you know, run from it, and dealing with our minds and our hearts and our attitudes first, and uh, that's hugely significant. And so we have this great uh, body of teaching and this great model of living uh, that is utterly and completely countercultural. That every single sinew of society and every angle that we come from absolutely laugh and mock at what God's model is for us. And one of the challenges for us is not ourselves to think similarly because we know God is good. We know God has created us and created sex and created marriage and created family and created society and created children and created us to be in that image and that sin is broken and divides and separates and disengages and doesn't care and uh, moves away from. So in knowing what God says and knowing the context and knowing our hearts, where do we go from here? Two areas, just as I close, two areas that we go to when we think about this commandment, first place we go to is to Christ. That's the first place we go to. Because we will never understand his commands. We will never understand his laws. We will never find any beauty in him and in his commands unless we see the beauty of Christ himself. We will never follow him and never say our amen to his model for living unless we have recognized and seen his own beauty, his light and the ugly selfishness and greed and lust and impurity that needs forgiven and dealt with in our own attitudes. Unless we have been touched by redeeming grace, unless we've been made clean and unless we've seen absolutely, yes Lord, that is right. I have been selfish and I've been lustful and impure and would do anything just to gratify myself at the expense of everyone and everything else. 
forgive me. And then live the life that follows that. So for us all, there, there will be a, a, a recognition and a confession of sin. We sung the whole of Psalm 51, an amazing, penitential, sacrificial uh, uh, psalm where there was this great recognition uh, of confession and of forgiveness. Against you, you only have I sinned. He knew that God had seen into his heart and that uh, David's motives and what he did in uh, denying the faith of his wife and uh, lusting after Bathsheba, taking her to be his own, abusing his kingly power, um, possibly even against her will, uh, then to get out of the mess that he had extricated him in by getting her pregnant. He has uh, her husband murdered on the battlefield. And so there's deception, there's greed, there's lust, there's lies, there's murder. And there's all kinds of mess as he... uh, relentlessly follows his own appetites. But then there's confession and forgiveness and renewal for him. And we go to Christ in our lives with these same confessional needs. might not be quite so dramatic as that. It might be, but it might not be. But we need in him forgiveness and we need the power of the Holy Spirit, which is a power which says, Uh, Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, meekness. Last but not least, self-control. Self-control. You know, the Spirit of God in our lives gives us self-control, which is hugely significant in this area. And it gives us a love and a respect for other people and for the community in which we live. And it gives us the ability to protect ourselves and to protect one another and to resist temptation and to flee from it. I'm not saying for a moment that it's easy. Uh, it's hugely challenging and hugely difficult in the society. In which, but we need to go back to uh, Hebrews this morning and say, uh, fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and, and be honest uh, with him and recognize him and recognize that we are children of God and we are Uh, called by God and we have an important task to do in this life and let's not be obsessed with sex because we're missing the point if we are. And uh, let's not be obsessed with it thinking that we can't overcome uh, or can't meet uh, God's standards for us because it's impossible to the absolutely impossible cross-eyed. We won't. But we recognize our calling is higher and that we we keep his... um, uh, his model in view for us. So we flee to Christ, but we also flee, can I say, in the second place. And I think this is very important and it's been underplayed very much. Maybe in our thinking on this. Is uh, to the Christian community. To the Christian community. That's where we flee. We, all, we flee from, we flee to Christ and we also flee to the Christian community. Because the reality is, well, sexual immorality, what does it do? Well, it damages relationships. That's what it does. Uh, It damages relationships because our attitudes are wrong. Because we're thinking of people wrong. Because we're thinking uh, of men or women wrong. If we're we're looking at them in pornographic material, uh, it's 
We're thinking of marriages wrong. We're thinking of our friends in a wrong way. It's a self-centered way of thinking. As we're in Christian community, we recognize several things. We recognize that many people in this church, as in every church, because we're no different, and no church is any different from ours, may be in life situations that is a real battle for them, real difficulty. And you may be looking at other people saying, oh, it's okay for them. They're married. It's no problem for them. Or whatever it might be that you say as you wish for what someone else has. But many people will be facing battles this evening in this area of living. There'll be those who have same-sex attraction and they're fed up with the church always talking about homosexuality or the gay agenda. And uh, they may be battling with the counter-cultural choice to be celibate within that. And they may long for intimacy and relationship, but no, it will not be theirs under Christ if things don't change. But there may be others who are single, who also long for intimacy and love and for the physical expression of that, but don't see any prospect. Women for whom uh, the body clock may be ticking and who long for family and long for relationship. Maybe divorced people, single parents, battling to bring up their children having known marriage but known the abuse of that marriage and the brokenness maybe that was very private and hurtful. But there's married people also, remember, who may be scarred by past sexual activity that's damaging their marriage or because they have a rotten and dull sex life themselves and are tempted by others, by newness, by opportunities, by temptation, by someone else who seems so understanding, so loving, so uh, sensitive to their needs. And for others, they may be battling here with pornography or with uh, unbridled lusts in their lives. What's the answer for us as we deal honestly with these things? It's Christ first. It's always Christ first. But it's also community. The Christian community. That we are to be people who throw ourselves into relationships. Not sexual ones. But relationships within the community of grace. That we come out of ourselves with all our burdens and with all our loss and with all our struggles. Whatever it may be. Whether it's this or whatever other command it might be. And that we serve one another. And that we give for one another. And we deny ourselves to uh, be there for one another. And we see the needs of other people. And we develop relationships with them. And closeness with them. And family unity within the Christian church. That we find our belonging there. Now I know it's not the same. But rejoice and praise God that he gives you this unity and this closeness and this family that we can be part of. A place where you can forgive and be forgiven. A place where you can be honest and vulnerable and open and not be judged and not be 
um, ignored and not be sniggered at and not be dealt with uh, in a careless and uh, loveless way. A place where we can talk about Christ and talk uh, to Christ with one another, where we can bear one another's burdens and when people can give us their burdens, also a place of healing and forgiveness on our journey together. It's a short journey in the light of eternity, and we share that journey together. It's not going to be perfect. There's going to be struggles. We're going to have to change, and doubtless Christ will change other people as well. But as we are changed, our perspective will change, and we will be more Christ-like in all that we do, and we will support one another through our struggles and through our battles and uh, until we get to a place where we can be honest with one another in these issues. I'm not talking about unburdening the deepest secrets of your hearts to everyone and the door and the way out of church. Don't be ridiculous. We can never do that. But unless we have a degree of honesty and openness with at least three or four people in our church, in our family, in our Christian community, that we can be accountable to and to whom we are accountable uh, and they are accountable to us, then uh, we will find a great degree of loneliness and a great degree of dishonesty and hypocrisy and uh, judgmentalism within our churches. And we will find the mountain, as we fixing on this morning, it will be like climbing a mountain all the time. But he gives us the help and the community to enable us to get through the battles. Whatever battles we may face in our marriages or in our singleness or in our engaged condition or uh, in uh, whatever it might be that we battle with in this area, uh, don't be alone. Don't be alone. Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, we ask that we would, nobody here would be struggling on their own with battles that uh, they think nobody else has or they're ashamed of uh, because they think nobody else uh, would understand or because as they look around the church, they think everyone else has got their Christian lives together. What a joke that is, isn't it? That we would think like that, Lord. That we would think somehow that we are the only ones who struggle where the Bible tells us some of the greatest, as we've seen in Hebrews, some of the people we raise up as great heroes of the faith were people who had huge personal battles and struggles and sins and uh, brokenness and darkness in their hearts that needed forgiveness and needed grace and needed redemption. And if we think we're anything else, then we have completely misunderstood grace in the gospel. So we pray for those who are struggling with all manner of different issues in this uh, field, in this area uh, of our sexual identity and of our uh, relationship with God uh, and his lordship over our lives. And we pray that you would help us to be pure and we know that is impossible without your grace and without your forgiveness. Help us to protect. We pray for the protection of our marriages 
uh, we pray for the protection of our children. We pray that we would uh, be able to go against the tide of uh, society where so much is uh, throwaway and so much is impermanent and where there's awe and wonder at a marriage that lasts or would even consider lasting for life. Be with those who struggle with same-sex attraction. Be with those who struggle with loneliness, singleness, um, longing for family and longing for relationship that uh, they might not have. May they not be bitter and may they not be angry with God, but may they see the joy and the uh, privilege of where he has them at this point. And may they go to him with the battles. Be with those who struggle in their marriage, those whose relationships are dull and have stopped working, as it were, and where there is coldness and separation and temptation. Remember us all in the variety of the needs that we face. And may we find forgiveness and hope and a new beginning in Jesus that is radical, revolutionary, real and living. For Jesus' sake, amen.